Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Iftjecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medievalist Erica Harlitz-Kern to discuss 2022 film Medieval. Yes, it's just called Medieval. So Erica, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular movie? Hey, so I am a medievalist at Florida International University in Miami, where I teach Vikings, medieval culture, ancient civilizations. Sometimes I also teach a course in Tudor and Stuart, England, and I teach courses in historiography and epistemology. And I am with the Department of History and the Honors College. I want to talk about this movie because there's several reasons. First of all, I'm interested in uh, medieval bohemian history. So behind me where I'm sitting, I have a cute little book stop that I bought at the National Library in Stockholm. And the book stop is in the shape of a devil. He's really cute. He's waving his arms and he's a little cross-eyed. He comes from a manuscript called the Codex Gigas, or also known as the Devil's Bible, which was made in Bohemia in the early 13th century. And it was stolen from the castle in Prague in 1648 when the Swedish army looted the city at the end of the Thirty Years' War. So it's a cute little book, bookstop I have there. I mean, there the other reasons why I want to discuss this movie is that it's it's also, I mean, f- first of all, it's in addition to the movie genre, medieval movies. Uh, and, and as such, it becomes interesting. But it is also interesting because it is, it has the ambitions to be an epic blockbuster movie. And it takes place in what is today the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it also becomes interesting because it is part of this reunification of Europe after the end of Cold War, mm-hmm. where Central Europe was sort of relegated to the periphery and became Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. But it is actually Central Europe, because if we're looking geographically where the Czech Republic actually is located, it's at the center. France is in the periphery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't usually think about France as the periphery of Europe, but it actually is. And and Prague is in fact, I believe, further west than Vienna, which is, yes. you know, usually, you know, Prague, but Prague is constructed as Eastern Europe, but Vienna as Central Europe. Absolutely. It's it's further west than Stockholm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that, you know, we're we're starting to sort of see the fruits of this reunification that is happening in medieval studies in Europe and how mm-hmm. it sort of starts to spill over into here in the United States, for example, the, the Medieval Academy of America for their annual meeting in 2024, they actually have Eastern Europe as a theme. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so that's why I think it's interesting that, you know, we have these things are starting to change, right? We're not... Yeah. Only, I mean, they men- they mentioned the the King of France, but he's not in the movie, and right. that's nice. It's new. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was something that did make me excited to some degree about this film was the fact that you know I've watched a lot of these movies, and so many of them are set in either England or France, 
mostly England and then like a smattering of France. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sick of England and France. I am excited to talk about something that's not England or France. So I have a lot of appreciation on that front, which made me cautiously intrigued. We'll get into the question of whether uh, that was borne out in terms of actually <laughs> watching the movie. Right. But I do have an appreciation for the fact that at least we are kind of geographically expanding uh, what we are including in the medieval past and what's getting portrayed from the medieval past. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, it, it sort of gives us a broader view of medieval Europe because parts, I mean, half of Europe has been you know, sort of out of reach for so mm-hmm. long during sort of when medieval studies becomes sort of the profession that it is mm-hmm. today. So... I think it's uh, it also teaches us more about you know the medieval experience because when I've been working on uh, medieval uh, Bohemia, I've been uh, studying the Benedictine order a lot, and also some of the in part also the Cistercian order. And whenever you're you're studying, for example, monastic orders, and I know this from because my original you know field of expertise is is medieval Scandinavia, and a lot of the times I have to argue just in favor of, you know, including Scandinavia in, in the Middle Ages and mm-hmm. not talk about Vikings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a completely different experience. And what I noticed is that I, I read, all, read research on, for example, medieval monastic orders. And I think, okay, so I got a grip on this. And then I start looking at what is happening in Scandinavia, what is happening in, in Bohemia, and none of it applies. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the monastic orders, they arrive later, or they are established through different groups, or they're financed differently, or, you know, they interact differently with the population and in the economy. So just because, I mean, I'm, I'm reading about, um, Cluny, for example, mm-hmm. and, and it's good for me to know, but when, if I'm going to talk about the monastery where this, you know, the Codex Gigas was made, mm-hmm. I have to come at it from a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I certainly come across as well, working on the Iberian Peninsula, right, that even that is like where, you know, the Mediterranean is often very, very different from the models that we see in Northern Europe. And uh, that tends to not necessarily be acknowledged or emphasized that there's a, you know, well, we should just assume that the default is England. And we shouldn't assume that the default is England, uh, in particular, for example, for Jewish history, which is what I work on. England is arguably, in fact, quite strange and unique. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's like, that's sort of also the challenge with medieval history, which Mm -hmm. the uh, term feudalism is is a Uh very good example of. There is a medieval history, there is a medieval culture but you can't put it into a cookie cutter sort of, you know, like this is medieval. Right, right. And one of the things actually that I think does work as we'll get into in this film is that it highlights the fact that Bohemia is not isolated. It kind of points to connections that it has with uh, other parts of Europe while still making it central. And I think that's a really big part of this, right? Is that all of these places have to some extent their own unique uh, cultures, but that we can talk about a medieval culture because these places are all interconnected because Bohemia is not isolated. Scandinavia is not isolated. The Iberian Peninsula are not, is not isolated. Yeah, because it's easy to forget or also not be aware of the fact that Prague was a major city yes. in medieval Europe. And Absolutely. also in Renaissance Europe, if we're, mm-hmm. if we're stretching it to the 16th century, I mean, 
when we're talking about the scientific revolution, the scientific revolution wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for Rudolf mm-hmm. II's right. court in the mm-hmm. late 16th century, because that is where both Tycho Brahe and uh, Johannes Kepler made their major discoveries mm-hmm. because they were court astronomers in right. Prague. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, extremely, extremely important place. And yeah, so it is interesting that so we have this movie, which is in fact a Czech movie. It is apparently the most expensive Czech movie ever made, but it is an English language movie with uh, most of the stars being actors who are native English speakers. Yeah, I noticed, though, what was interesting is that the main characters are either English or American. Yes. But in several of the most important warriors are actually Scandinavian. There are Norwegian and Mm -hmm. Swedish actors. There are German actors. So it's, it's interesting that it's the most expensive Czech movie about a Czech national hero. (laughs) <laughs> and there's like no Czech people in it. Right. Yeah. I, I noticed that, that there's certainly, at least I didn't look up every single person, but looking at the names, there certainly weren't uh, in much in the way of names that <laughs> jumped out to me as, as being, as being Czech names. And yeah. So in our, most of our stars, you know, we have, you know, Ben Foster as Jan Jiska, Michael Caine as Lord Borash, Matthew Good as Sigismund, you know, all these like very, let's see, is, is Ben Foster American? I yeah. can't remember. Yeah, yeah he's American and the other two yeah. are both English, I believe. Yeah. And and I noticed that because... So the, the language is English, but there are a couple of instances when we hear other languages. For example, there's a song that is recurring in the movie where they yes. sing in Czech. Yes. And then there is an instance where one of Jan Zizka's men is also singing a song, but it's in Swedish. <laughs> Which is clearly, I'm sure, just because he spoke Swedish and they're like, please just sing a song in a language that's not English. Yeah, nobody will know because <laughs> I, I was watching it with uh, closed captions just to make sure that I got everything. Mm-hmm. And the closed caption said that the song was in French. Oh, oh, I and think I mine like, just said singing in foreign language. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> And we do have uh, one among the kind of main cast as uh, Lord Rosenberg. We do have one German actor. We have uh, Till Schweiger, who is uh, Stiglitz and Inglorious Bastards, who actually lives in Mallorca, where I am currently located at the time of recording. Ooh, you need to keep a lookout. Maybe you'll see I him. I know. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, kind of wave and be like, I hey, just saw you in, uh, in this movie. Um, you did a good job. You were good. <laughs> and I will say, uh, oh, and the one person I guess I will also make sure to mention is the cast is our uh, token lady in the movie, uh, Sophie Lowe as Catherine, who looked very familiar to me, but apparently I've not actually seen her in anything. She's sort of a type, uh, the Kira Knightley and, oh, what's her name in Star Wars? Oh, uh, in the new ones, Daisy yeah. Ridley? Yes, she's kind of in that d- vein that her her face yeah so that's why she sort of looks vaguely familiar because she kind of looks like somewhere along those lines I think it's that yeah and also I was kind of thinking about and she like the hair is very different but she also has oddly kind of similar features to Sophie Turner I'm not familiar with her her. I might be mixing up her name but the woman who played Sansa Stark 
Oh, okay. Yeah. In Game of Thrones. I, mm-hmm. I feel like they have actually somewhat similar features. So yeah, I think she just, I think she just looks like a variety of other people, but yeah. Yeah. Cause I thought so with, I actually had problems keeping the men in Shishka's party apart. Oh, I have they, no idea which is which. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, it's one of those, you know, like all white guys look the same type of thing yeah i wasn't even always entirely sure which was like jishka until he loses an eye i'm like oh thank god (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 he kind of blended in absolutely yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, but yeah so with that i think we can get into the anubaratio or recap section where we talk through some of the details of this movie i sighed because literally the first word of this movie is violence. That sets the tone, I think. Yeah, and I think that the second and the third words that were war and plague. War, plague, tyranny, intrigues, they're all in there somewhere. There's basically a list of everything that is very bad, because it was very bad back then. Yes, and while these words are spoken, we see uh, mud and violence. And yep. blood. Yep. Lots of mud, lots of blood, and everything is very, very gray. That will be a theme throughout this movie. This is another of our extremely gray medieval movies, because it was it was the Dark Ages back then, so they hadn't invented color yet. Exactly. There were no uh, colors for clothes, and there were no colors on buildings, and mm-hmm. uh, there were no fantastic floor tiles. I just have to say, when it comes to medieval architecture, I love medieval floor tiles because they are the color scheme on medieval floor tiles are bananas but unfortunately we will not see that in this movie we will not no we we see occasional kind of glimpses at medieval works of art that are basically that are all like very out of context like they all like tend to feel very much like they're sort of in a museum like there's something that's clearly supposed to be an altarpiece and it's just like alone on a wall on like a white wall somewhere yeah, I mean, I I noticed that with other uh, medieval movies also that they yeah. are they are they are very concerned with historical accuracy, so that they they acquire or borrow actual medieval objects. But the problem is that then they they put those medieval objects in the movies the way that they look now. So right. they are without color, they're without hands, half a face, and I was like, that is not what they looked like back then. They were beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And similarly, that you have this tendency that, oh, we're going to film this like in front of a medieval castle. Well, the medieval castle is now in ruins. And it makes no sense that it was in ruins in 1402. But don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've got that in this film as well. Especially also, since building stone castles came very late to Bohemia. So the question is, are they even 15th century? Right, right. So very silly and we get a lot of background about the fact that uh you know we have we had the the death of the holy roman emperor charles iv which apparently was uh, is described as being the catalyst that made everything change for the worst which we'll discuss we get some notes about the uh, the great western schism that we've got two popes currently basically as things are presented everything is in crisis and that's why there's so very much blood and mud yeah so <laughs> it's it's sort of a stereotypical view yes. of uh, the Middle Ages that also sort of flattens the culture and the sophistication of the political intrigue that was actually happening. 
we are at a point in in history where just because the ruler dies, it doesn't mean that the state collapses. We are past that point. Right. We actually have bureaucracies and we have legislation that continues. Yeah, so we have we have come so far in the state formation process. I mean, a very good example is Denmark in the 13th century, where the state literally falls apart because there's so much uh, political feuding and civil wars in the top tier of the society. But on the local level, everything is normal. So the local judges are still meeting out justice and, you know, wills are still written, inheritance is still being, you know, handed out when someone dies, crimes are prosecuted, everything works normally on the local level. It's just that the people at the top, they can't agree. So Denmark doesn't really have like a a political structure at the top. But research Mm -hmm. has shown that locally, everything is normal. Everybody's doing their jobs. In the same way, right, that even in these contexts of, uh, you know, that in a lot of the work that I do that, you know, so you can see looking at notarial documentation, kind of looking at this documentation of everyday economic life, that there are certainly these kinds of really striking changes that you see often right in the kind of immediate wake of the Black Death, for example, but that when things then kind of move forward, but there seems to actually in a lot of ways be a relatively quick recovery when we're talking about kind of practically speaking what things look like on the ground in at least a lot of the the larger cities and that in addition to that that a king dying it makes essentially no impact in that kind of documentation it, it simply doesn't matter no it's true and if if we're talking about disruptions of the uh, the black death during the black death when that hit sweden sweden got its first national law mm-hmm yeah. Going from being a federation to a you know a unified kingdom with one yeah. law instead of you know ten different laws mm-hmm. and one king, if the plague would you know be so, I mean the plague was disruptive, but if society was so fragile, you wouldn't have been able to to change a whole legal system. Right. Right. It also seems to imply that the death of Charles IV caused the papal schism. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm not an expert on the papal schism, but it was sort of wrapping up at this point, like early 15th century. Yeah, it's sort of yeah, it's um, it's still got a few years to go because the Council mm. of Constance is uh, fourteen fifteen mm. uh, is when it for, or fourteen fourteen to fourteen eighteen I think are the total dates. So we're still we are still a decade or so out too from right. actually from actually resolving that. But yeah, but it, there's there are many many complicated factors explaining the Great Western Schism. I have not actually heard of the death of Charles the Fourth as being ever in fact one of them <laughs> no and also uh i mean what there there are a couple of things that that this movie sort of skips over that are very very important and that is the fact yes. that uh, we're dealing with the holy roman empire yes and we're also dealing with jan hus and jan Who hus is, is mentioned like three there. Four, yeah he sort of mentioned it three or four times but he was very important at this point in time mm-hmm. and and the fact that how Charles IV appointed his successor and then who has the right to be king of what was also, you know, regulated and not something that just happened willy-nilly and someone died and suddenly like, oh, what do we do now? Everybody knew what to do. 
So there is all sorts of real political intrigue that we're going to talk about more later. But what if instead of tapping a movie that's about any of the real political intrigue, we make up a story that centers some people that didn't actually exist as being the focal point of the political intrigue. And uh, that is pretty much what is happening here. When we start out, when we see, when we meet Jan Jishka, he and his men are currently working for Lord Borash. So that's Michael Caine, a person who, as far as I can tell, did not exist and is invented for the purposes of this film. And he is bringing this letter of safe conduct to King Wenceslas IV. So who is King of Bohemia has been elected as Holy Roman Emperor, but has not been crowned. And he's bringing him this letter of safe conduct so that he can be crowned. But uh, it turns out that the men of Henry III of Rosenberg are not on board with this and are therefore trying to have him killed. Yeah, I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there, there are, a, I, I listened to a podcast where the creators of Medieval, which is the name of the movie. Um, Just called Medieval. Yes. <laughs> where they explained, you know, sort of the idea behind it. And uh, they had no interest in history whatsoever. That seems clear. Yeah, so at least they're honest about it. So it's not one of those where, you know, well, we're actually historical accurate because blah, 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 but we did take some liberties. They didn't set out to make a historically accurate movie. So at least they are honest about that. The problem is that movies with visual media are so mm-hmm. impactful that you actually believe what you see and it's the image that sort of you know gets stuck in your head i mean this is why people think that sarah palin actually said that she can see russia from her house she didn't mm-hmm. it's tina fey and it's the same thing here we get this you know interpretation of jan zhishka and it, he is a hero in the Czech Republic, but I'm, I am intrigued by the fact that he is a hero, because when you start looking into, you know, what he did, and why he behaved the way he did, you start wondering, like, why is he a hero? And, and a lot of the problems when we're studying medieval history in, when it comes to Bohemia, or the Czech lands, as they are, you know, officially called in medieval history writing, is that we don't really know anything because the research itself, first of all, primary sources barely exist. We can say things about 14th century, 15th century, because there is more primary sources. Bohemia is getting more and more involved in the Holy Roman Empire. But before that, we hardly know anything. And when it comes to history Mm -hmm. writing, medieval history writing, first, when Czech history started being written, Bohemia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, unhappy. Right. Uh, so the history that is written, you know, early on in the early 20th century, and also when Czechoslovakia becomes its own nation after 1918, it's very nationalist. Right. right. And then That's, World War yeah. II happens. Mm-hmm. And it becomes part of the Soviet bloc. So instead of being nationalist, all of that is just thrown out. And now everything needs to be Marxist. And then the Soviet bloc crumbles and Czechoslovakia becomes the Czech Republic. And now 
it is the third iteration of medieval history. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, all of this put together, it's like, it's very difficult to say yes. what we actually know and, you know, who did what and why. Right. And in particular, I'll also note, and we'll talk more about this later, that one one of the things to keep in mind, and this is true certainly of Bohemia, but, of Bohemia, but true in some other places as well, that somebody like Jan Zizka, who becomes important relatively late into his life, somebody like that, it's not that surprising. We actually know very, like the period where this movie takes place, we actually know very, very little about him that, uh, you know, we we sort of essentially assume he's a mercenary. And as I said, we'll kind of get into more details about that later. But we don't really know, in fact, what Jan Zizka was doing in 1402 with any degree of, you know, specificity, certainly. And so essentially, this movie is basically creating this prequel for Zizka and the period, you know, where, where his life is, in fact, a blank. Mm. And one of the things that it seems like it's doing is giving this figure who, you know, one could argue about whether or not in his lifetime he is actually somebody who one would want to celebrate as a hero and giving him this, I would say in some ways, arguably kind of more stereotypically heroic arc over the course of this film, but which is completely invented. Yeah, and also completely modern. Yes, yes, in terms of the idea of what makes somebody a hero. Yeah, and what values he has, Mm -hmm. his outlook on life, and also Mm -hmm. uh, Lady Catherine's outlook on life. Yes. They are all decidedly 21st century. Yes, they, they all really believe in, like, equality and just like being nice and uh it's you know they're they're just such nice people (laughs) yeah exactly it's like uh, there are some some brutality going on in the movie uh there are people who are punished and executed in ways that today would be shocking but at that point in time that is how people were punished but the and... people that we see doing that, though, are the people who then are coded in the film as the villains. We yes. don't actually see Zizka. We see Zizka killing people in battle. We mm-hmm. don't see Zizka brutally murdering civilians. No. People. Right. And and what one character is uh, executed through impalement. Yes. Which is, I mean, <laughs> it's going to sound like I'm... I'm not condoning this in any way, but it is just like crucifixion was in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. It is not unusual for people to be executed through impalement in 15th century Central Europe. Right. It is not uniquely sadistic as it is presented in this film. And so, yes, we have these characters who have this very as you said, 21st century ideal of uh, how people should be treated of, you know, the treatment of civilians versus combatants. And uh, that this is then going to really be kind of central to then how Zizka and Catherine, who I'm just going to, you know, spoiler alert, shock, shock of shocks. The one woman in the movie, there's, there is one other woman, but the one woman who's an actual character in the movie, guess what? She's going to be his love interest. I, I couldn't believe it. I was so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> surprise. And also surprised. She has hardly any lines. 
She has hardly any lines and she doesn't really also have, and I see this very frequently, she does not have a personality. She has occasional platitudes that she spouts about ethics. We don't know why or how she came to believe these things. We don't know how this manifests in her everyday life. We hear her briefly kind of indicate that she's interested in the preaching of Jan Hus, but we don't know what about it she finds particularly attractive or compelling. We see a decent amount of her looking sort of sadly pretty, but we know, in fact, very, very little about her. We actually even know very, very little about her background. We get the vague uh, piece of information that her uncle is the king of France. We never actually even find out who her father is. She does not have a any, she only has a first name. She does not have. She any doesn't have a mother. Either identifying name, yeah. Her, her mother. Her mother is briefly referred to as the the father is the one who was nice and wasn't going to make her have an arranged marriage, and the mother is like the real bitch who was going to force her into one. <laughs> as if people of her stature at this point in time right. actually married for love and expected to marry for love, right? No. It is one of my absolute pet peeves that there are so many examples of elite women and, in fact, men in movies set in the Middle Ages who are shocked, shocked to hear that arranged marriages are a thing. And this is another example of that, where she at least kind of gestures eventually at the fact that she was like, oh, yeah, it was like a real option for me that I was going to marry for love. And it's like, no, it wasn't. No. But no. she doesn't <laughs> exist. So I guess who knows? She shows up, by the way, I will note she shows up at minute 12. Minute 12 is the first time we have any indication that women exist in the entire kingdom of Bohemia. Yes. Uh, Just like in Gladiator, where there's mm -hmm. only one woman in all of Rome. Mm -hmm. Yep. And what I thought was interesting when she shows up is that she is so plainly dressed and she's walking around alone yes. that she is genuinely mistaken for a servant. Yeah, I, I thought she was a servant. <laughs> because <laughs> she's serving them drinks yeah and wearing very plain clothing yes and also she has no entourage she has no ladies in waiting yeah she she is very very plain and the fact that she's walking around alone she is unchaperoned among warriors it just i'm i'm i am trying to figure out what the movie makers wanted with that right. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what was the purpose of that yeah, I mean, it seems very much, I wonder if part of it is this effort that that you often see that there's a real effort in a lot of films set in the Middle Ages to make their heroes uh, kind of more more sort of of the people. So in the way, for example, that, you know, figures like William Wallace is, you know, in Braveheart turned into a peasant when in fact he's lower nobility in the mm. way that Kingdom of Heaven turns Balian of Ibelan into this like illegitimate blacksmith's son when he's just your regular old crusader nobleman that I wonder if they're they're kind of trying to with her sort of have their cake and eat it too in that they need her to be politically important for her function in the plot to make sense but they want to downplay that as much as possible in terms of her character so that they make her seem like she's somebody who except for these occasional gestures at the fact that no actually she has these important political connections and familial connections that she comes off as somebody who could very well be somebody who is, you know, of lower or middling status. Yeah. And also it shows that 
e- you know, even with all of that, she's she's not a threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, you know, a, a lower status person who is completely plain and can blend in. She's not a threat, mm-hmm. either as a woman or as a political person. Right. Right. Whereas in reality, you know, somebody like that who is so she we find out that she is uh, Rosenberg's fi- uh, fiance, which I will note was I felt not clear for a while until a while after we met this Pierce, this person. Yeah. Um, but that not only that, but she is it's a big secret. In fact, also the uh, the niece of the King of France, which I, I just found hilarious, really, that you know that like everybody would know that that would be in fact probably the main thing anybody knew about her would be in fact that she was the niece of the king of france yeah and you would think then that that henry rosenberg would want everybody to know this that he has this catch of a wife that's because presumably that would be in fact exactly why he is marrying her yes exactly but no it's a big secret So she is, I guess I would describe her actually kind of as the object of the plot in that she is, so essentially, you know, we have these kind of political intrigues that, you know, we know that Rosenberg is basically trying to prevent Wenceslas from being crowned in the version of events that we have in this film. And so Borish's idea is that, well, let's force him to do what we want by kidnapping Catherine as his fiancée. So basically, as a way to kind of blackmail him. Yeah. So she's sort of the MacGuffin of the story because yeah. the story is not really about her, but yeah. she is sort of what propels the story f- forward. Uh, and it, she it could took- be a really nice piece of jewelry. And the only real difference would be that there would be like two fewer scenes where Janjushka got to make out with somebody. Yeah. She could have been a relic. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah. stakes would have been higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, you, yeah. Well, you do kiss a relic exactly you do exactly she she really could just be a relic <laughs> <laughs> cool cool <laughs> we learned that as a plan uh we also around at this point we meet jan Zizka's family his uh his brother and his nephew his nephew is very youthful and admiring of him and, uh, you know, asks him this story about, you know, did you really kill a boar with your bare hands? And uh, Jan Zizka gives him this boar tusk and says that, you know, he's been wearing, which presumably comes from this boar that he kills with his bare hands and says, you know, this will make you, you know, brave and fast and strong. And this is a point where I immediately wrote in my notes. So this kid's going to die, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I thought that the 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 family dynamic was very interesting mm-hmm. because again, there are no women. Uh, a neighboring woman comes by who's part of this, you know, rebellion, quote unquote. Right. She's a rebel. Know, she does have unquote. a name. Her name is Barbara. But otherwise, there, there's no woman in this household. So I'm yeah. just wondering, it's like, how does this farm actually work? Mm-hmm. Because you need women to mm-hmm. do stuff because chores are gender coded Mm -hmm. yeah i mean in most contexts you really would have assumed that especially with you know it it seems like also the the mother of the who is i believe completely nameless the uh the mother of this boy you know died a while ago so especially you know taking into account you know the the question of child rearing right Mm -hmm. it seems it seems very strange that he would not have remarried relatively quickly 
Yes, absolutely. No, he would have remarried. And, and, and I also found it interesting that they're sort of alluding to the fact that the two, that uh, Jan Zizka and his brother Yaroslav, that they are somehow estranged because Jan, first of all, didn't seem to know Yaroslav's wife and he right. didn't know that she was dead. Right. They kind of gesture at some things about their relationship, about their family history, about their father and what their father's beliefs were that seem sort of shoehorned into the movie and are not really dealt with that effectively, in my opinion. No. And also, I mean, the the little historical information that we actually have about Jan Ziska's life at this point in time is that he is involved deeply in the family farm and that they are having financial troubles and he's probably selling land and he shows up what they think might be him involved in land transactions that might have to do with the family farm. So he's not running around, you know, kidnapping uh, ladies and putting them in distress. (laughs) He's actually trying to save his family farm from bankruptcy, from what it looks like, from what scant information we have. So if this had been historically grounded, then he and Yaroslav probably would have been very, very close working very, very hard Mm -hmm. to save the family farm because medieval economy is based on land control, at least. And so the implication here, right, is that he just like took off and decided like, I'm going to do this mercenary thing. And every now and then shows up and like throws a coin at his brother, basically. Yeah, because what little we know about Jean Giska is that he most likely, he did become a mercenary from what we understand. But it is after that, you know, something went very wrong with the farm. Yeah. And he had no other option. It's not like, hey, I'm going to go out and uh, see the world. Have fun, Yaroslav, digging in the dirt. Uh, That's not it. (laughs) Yeah. So they kidnap Catherine. Catherine goes to hear the preaching of Jan Hus. Rosenberg, you know, does not go with her because he's like, he seems like a heretic. I don't know about this whole thing. So we get like that, like two minute, like dialogue. and, And despite that, we know genuinely, I think nothing. If based on this film about Jan Hus or the preaching of Jan Hus or why anybody might like or not like Jan Hus. No, I mean, we hear his voice, but he's basically not saying anything beyond, you know, sort of shallow things that. And what I also found interesting is, again, she is dressed like a servant Mm -hmm. and she goes there without an entourage of any kind. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have any ladies in waiting. She doesn't have any guards with her. And uh, she just can she can just disappear into the crowd. So if she had been a real person of that stature at this point in time, yeah. people would know that she was in the chapel. People would know she was in the chapel and it would be a lot harder to kidnap her because she would have an entourage of people around her who would yeah. be concerned about her being kidnapped. Yep. <laughs> And also the way that she was kidnapped. Some guy shows up in a monk's cloak. Yeah, and it's like, we need to talk about your donation. And she's like, okay. <laughs> oh, my credit card bounced? Oh, my check bounced? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll see if I can find another card to give you. They also, in what just seems just like a gratuitous, did you know everything was very violent and bad back then? They end up smuggling her out in like a 
cart of court. It's like the bring out the dead cart from Monty Python. The I Holy was thinking Grail. that as well. They, like put her yeah. at the bottom of it just to smuggle her out. And I was like, <laughs> you could have just put her in a wagon and put a blanket over it. Right. That would have right. worked too. You, you didn't need the corpses. Oh. And where did they find them? Um, That's what I want to know. I, I, where I don't there... know. <laughs> that that was not clear. Yeah. So Rosenberg also, I think, I believe he learns this while he is in bed with his mistress, who I would like to refer to as a boobs McNoname, since she sure is naked and she sure doesn't have a name and we sure don't know anything about her except for the fact that apparently she does things in bed that he couldn't expect from his noble fiance. Yeah, and she, she was never, never seen again. Seen again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. This movie's really great about women. Everybody. Yeah. It's, so, it's so, only going to go uphill from here, too. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> we now know that there are two women in Bohemia. In there are three. There's Catherine. Oh, yeah, there's Barbara. Uh, Barbara, the, yes. the rebel woman. And there is Boobs with no name. That is true. Yes. And Barbara, she wore something that looked more appropriate in The Walking Dead than as a peasant woman in the early 15th century. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Essentially, we have a a series of battles, which kind of, to be honest, a lot of them have blended together for me. And Catherine gets kind of passed back and forth for a while. We do, of course, have the attack where, um, so uh, somebody who I believe is named Torak, who was at some point Jishka's mentor, it's also kind of vaguely referenced and like not given a lot of detail. And like the backstory is a little vague to me, but whatever. He ends up uh, then going to the farm and he kidnaps Yaroslav to use as leverage and impale executes the nephew which I again just wrote in my notes called it because it's it's just like such a trope right that if you like have that like you know if you have a father and the father seems really nice the father is gonna die if you have a young person and you're gonna like say to the young person like I have such high hopes for your future that kid's gonna die like just every time every time Yeah. So what what I think is 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 uh, at the, because this is sort of when when the plot you know starts moving and and it, and the movie really you know starts going, but but the problem is that it is the the plot is so convoluted that I am having problems because there's a double cross and then there's a double cross on that double cross and then there is a triple cross. And I'm not really sure about who actually wants to kidnap Catherine in the end, because it seems like everybody wants to kidnap Catherine, except Jan Zizka, who wants to suddenly, out of nowhere, deliver her to her unknown father, who is then, I guess, fallen in love with her, obviously, because she's the only woman in Bohemia. So, like, he's pretty hard up at this point, assuming that he is a heterosexual man. Yeah, so I act. I have to be honest that I had problems following the plot, as as in like who what who wanted what, through which means. Yeah, I kind of understood it at the time, and now it is not totally in my head anymore. So yeah, Boresh is the person, right, who originally 
push this kidnapping. And that was to get Rosenberg to actually support Wenceslas getting crowned. Then at some point, uh, Sigismund kind of gets in here and Sigismund is uh, Matthew Good with his hair dyed and alarming shade of sort of copper, which uh, does not work on him. And he seems to have at this point in terms of how things are presented, decide that decided that actually, I think what if instead getting my brother crowned, I get crowned. <laughs> and so I'm just going to intervene in all of this to just serve my own goals. Rosenberg, I guess, would like his his fiance back, not because he, you know, cares about her, but because he is supposed to marry her and it will look bad if he lets her like continue to be in the hands of these sort of miscellaneous mercenaries and her father will be very mad etc yeah i mean the thing is that i think that they i think that the what we see with this plot is that we have a movie that has sort of an identity crisis Mm -hmm. because it's a movie about historical characters and historical events that has no foundation in history whatsoever so it looks like they want they wanted to do an action film about a hero in the past and at the same time it wants to it wants to be somewhere in between gladiator braveheart game of thrones and king arthur and it achieves neither it it (laughs) achieves none of that but at the same time the actual history of the intrigue that is going on in the holy roman empire is also very complicated, which is probably why there are so few movies actually made about the Holy Roman Empire, because there right. is a lot of back and forth. And, and it and is a, confusing. It is genuinely, con, genuinely confusing. I have, let's see, where is it? Peter Wilson's Heart of Europe. This book here. Mm-hmm. Nice and is, thick for our uh, for our listeners. Yes, it is. I think it, it's a total of 942 pages it's peter wilson's heart of europe and it's 942 pages this is his history of the holy roman empire only the holy roman empire this it's not about france not about spain not about england it's about the holy roman empire and it's almost a thousand pages thick so the holy roman empire is complicated so this is one of those instances where if you want to create a good plot a complicated plot you don't have to do any work all you need to do is just read a book right right one could do that and that and that is the thing also is that it's it's one of many examples that i have seen where somebody has decided that the thing that they make up is more interesting than the thing that actually happened. And once again, they are, in my opinion, wrong. That there is a really interesting story about political intrigue that is in fact happening with Wenceslas and the Bohemian nobility and his brother Sigismund. And this like has like hints of it, but is not quite it. And the real version probably would have been better. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, what we see specifically, you know, when as the Middle Ages progresses and we move into the the when the Renaissance reaches Central Europe, which is in the 16th century, and the Habsburgs take uh, power in the Holy Roman Empire, 
we see these family intrigues, you know, really ramp up. So it's so fascinating. It is absolutely so fascinating that you don't, you don't have to do a lot of work yourself. All you need to do is read a book and then place yourself in the shoes of the people that you are reading about. And all you need to do is ask yourself the question, what if this was me, what would I do? Right, right. But then instead they did this. This is what they did. But I think it comes from, I'm just speculating. When I listened to the podcast with the creators of the movie, I got this idea that, you know, history is something that anybody can do. Right. You don't need professional history to do something worthwhile about history. And and I think that is a fallacy that people tend to fall into for some reason. I mean, and this is also, I think, in particular, as part of it too, right? It is this idea that this like hubris also in some ways, right? That the the thing that this person, a non-historian, invents about the past is better and more interesting than anything that actually happened. Yeah. Which I just find utterly bizarre. And, and you know, it's one of those things where just, it would be so nice for all of these movies if they just actually had like three conversations with a historian and listened to them. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons why why the Game of Thrones works so well, because mm-hmm. when when the the most pivotal events that are based on the books, the pivotal events in the books, when they are dissected and when you start looking into what George R. R. Martin did, you mm-hmm. find a historical event at the bottom. Right, that you see the ways in which he took inspiration in these really interesting ways and in which he kind of realized that that gives this kind of texture to the world. Yeah, I completely agree that that's one of the things that is very successful about much of Game of Thrones. Uh, and I think also that's why, you know, the the show then derails when they walk, yes. walk away from the, from the yeah. books because they don't have that foundation. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I will also note in terms of other things happening with the plot at some point in this amorphous uh, kind of central part of the movie, there is a like two minute conversation between the two women, between Catherine and Barbara. It, I would argue, does not in fact pass the Bechdel test because they talk about Jan Hus and then talk about her fiance. And that is all. One could, I suppose, argue that they're sort of talking about religion, but I think that's a stretch because they really don't say very much or anything of substance. They're really talking about, like, what do you think about Jan Hus? And then, did you know your fiancé is actually a real jerk? That is essentially the conversation. Um, But that conversation does happen. Yes. And I think also Rosenberg is supposed to be the bad guy. Rosenberg and Sigismund are supposed to be the bad guys. But it's never really established so when when Catherine is is riding around the bohemian countryside with uh, Jan Zizka and his men and he's they see all these horrible things that are happening and she was like oh no this can't this can't be real this can't be happening this is terrible and then they say well this is your fiance doing it and then they just ride on right it, and it's also she's just very much she has all of these vague morals about, well, this isn't very nice and you shouldn't do this because it's not very nice. What the movie seems like it thinks it's doing 
is having her grapple with the fact that she learns that actually her fiance is doing all of these really horrible things that she finds morally repugnant. But she would have to have a personality and be a real character for her to actually grapple with those things, as opposed to look sort of prettily shocked sometimes when they happen in front of her. Yeah, because I think that as the movie progresses, she gets less and less to do. And she speaks less and less. So during the final third of the movie, when Catherine appears on screen, she basically has the same facial expression and she doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I, that I found interesting was when she, and I don't remember which context, but she and Jan were out walking in the forest Mm -hmm. and they come across this village that is being harassed and there's a young boy named David who is being hung from a tree. Right. He's being hanged from a tree. And and she turns to Zizka and she says, you know, what kind of a man are you to allow this to happen? Basically. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm sorry, you're engaged to the guy who's like responsible directly for this and now you're mad at him because he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything about this because we're two people and they're an army. Yeah. What? And what she does then is that she hurls her down, herself down a slope and just runs into this situation and goes, stop. And then John okay. has some kind of awakening that he already has had and follow her down the slope and tries to take on this, you know, group of highly skilled soldiers on his own. And he's, of course, beaten up, but somehow he wins anyway. Because he always wins, you know, like every battle, like this actually, you know, goes back to the very beginning of the movie that there have like, there are like six people left in like Jan Jishka and his band of mercenaries. And then they're fighting. I think at some point they say that they are up against 1000 people and then they kill all of them in like four minutes. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, because we we after I watched it, we we started because uh, I was I was watching it with someone uh, just so I could bounce off and you know take notes and whatever, and we started thinking that you know because of all the things that he's going through and he's surviving all of them, and they become more and more incredulous as it goes along. So we right. have this uh, situation where at the very beginning of the movie where Lord Boris is being attacked by assassins and Zizka and his men just kill all of them fairly quickly. And then we have this uh, incident with, with the young man who's being hanged from a tree and how Zizka then somehow manages to, to kill all of them. Of and course. then we also have at, at the very, very end, the final battle where he is fighting against Torak. So he's, you know, fighting against his mentor. Torak takes a blade and rams it into Zizka's armpit. Mm -hmm. And he does it repeatedly. And somehow Zizka can push Torak over a wall into the water, pick up a stone at the bottom of the lake, and smash it into Torak's head. Mm-hmm. And I sure. was like, um, sure. Four, okay, so one, your arm is working again. Two, have you ever done like aquarobics? <laughs> I mean, seriously? <laughs> he's just like, he's just like the advertisement for like an aquarobics class. Yeah. 
I mean, I've, I've done my fair share of aquarobics. It's much harder, you know, just to move your legs. Anyway, he manages to, to, to smash in the skull of a man underwater. And then he also manages to carry the body of Lady Catherine with yeah. his arm pit cut up in uh -huh. pieces and he stabbed all over his body. So we figured that this the the idea here is not necessarily to paint Zizka as a hero, but a superhero. Yes. Yeah. It's which is it, it's just utterly ridiculous. And also, as you touched on uh, the body of Catherine, this is because Catherine, in the middle of this pivotal battle, essentially uh, commits suicide as a distraction. Yeah. That she just she just throws herself off the like castle ramparts into this water lake river. I don't remember yeah. some body of water. Yeah. Like literally just, it's a distraction. Like that's what she's doing. She's like, actually, I'm just going to kill myself as a distraction because of course, like she and Jishka are in love based on the fact that hey, they have had like three conversations and that she is the only woman in Bohemia. Like there is nothing to this relationship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a feeling that what they did had, I mean, for, first of all, they have no, the, the filmmakers have very little respect for, for the few women that, that show up in the movie. Right. And I think also that it's sort of, it feels to me like a deus ex machina moment mm -hmm. that the only way to stop this movie <laughs> is to remove the MacGuffin. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so it, you know, it's, and it's just such utter bullshit and really does show the extent to which, like, she is a MacGuffin. She's an object. She is not a character. They do not care about her as a person that they have created. And so, of course, yeah, we're just going to just just throw her off a cliff. Yeah. And and she does it voluntarily. Yeah. And which that is, and that which is, is actually worse. Yeah. And also what I find fascinating is that they are in this very, very small courtyard in a castle courtyard. It's very, very small. There's fighting going all on all over the place. People are getting mm -hmm. killed and maimed left, right, and center. And she's standing in the middle of it in a white shift mm -hmm. and is unharmed. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like angelic, right? I mean, because again, because you're not a person, She's yeah. a, you know, a object slash symbol. And so, you know, she is untouched by the violence around her because she just kind of has to be as this like kind of vague, like moral, you know, moral center or kind of, or, or actually like, you know, she then becomes right in theory, she's presented as being this kind of vague moral inspiration. I mean, so, you know, we're, we're literally doing some nice fridging here that, you know, then there's this kind of vague implication as, you know, at the very end that we see, you know, Zizka riding into battle as you know leading the Hussite armies that you know he's like we see that he's like wearing Catherine's stupid ring that she was carrying around during the movie and that this is supposed to imply right that you know she is this kind of inspiration for him it's just such fucking bullshit and I hate it so much I hate it so 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 much I was so <laughs> angry I like literally as I was watching this which was you know in like an Airbnb in the like town of Manresa and so I'm just like sitting here and I'm sitting here and I'm watching this movie and I think I actually yelled I'm sorry fucking what like very very loudly as she like throws herself off 
this wall. Okay, and then also that she she wakes up just long enough to like make out with the last time in that time. I'm like, I don't know how drowning works. Yeah. Um <laughs> yeah, and she also has that's the when she gives her the ring, right? Uh-huh. She also has the time to yeah, yeah get the ring has- and She's yeah. alive just long. She's because like it seems like she's dead, right? Like he's like carrying her like lifeless seeming body, and then she like coughs up some water, kisses him, gives him this ring, and then dies. That could not have been a good kiss for Jan Shishka. That could not have been, you know, some. You need to rinse your mouth a little bit at least. You would think. But what I was thinking after after that is that so she dies and she gives the ring. And then we see this um, imagery. Let's see. I wrote this down. Oh, yeah. So first, so she dies. And then we have some explanatory text, right? Mm -hmm. Because the the movie starts with explanatory text. But it is completely random, the text that they choose to highlight on the screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, so the voiceover gives you important information, but it's not the important information that is put on the screen at the very beginning that would actually help you understand what is happening. Right. And then at the end, we get more text on the screen to explain what happened after. Mm-hmm. I, I, wrote, I wrote this down. So after the death of his brother, Sigismund became king of Bohemia, but the people revolted against him. When Sigismund branded them heretics and orchestrated Europe's crusade against them, Jan Shishka led the vastly outnumbered peasants. All of that is bullshit. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Because, yes, Sigismund became king and emperor after his brother died because that was already decided. Right. The legal way in the Holy Roman Empire. So he's Mm -hmm. not a usurper or anything. And the people did not revolt against Sigismund. It is the Hussites who revolt against the church because they want to celebrate mass a specific way. Sigismund as the emperor represents the church. And just like every single emperor of the Holy Roman Empire does, including Mm -hmm. Charles IV and Wenceslas IV. And that we, of course, also kind of have the additional, you know, sort of complicated situation that, you know, so the, the Council of Constance, which is where they finally resolve the Great Schism, is also, you know, Sigismund, you know, calls this council as, you know, one of the figures presiding over this council. And it is the, the first thing they do, essentially, or, you know, or close to the first thing that they do is they have called Jan who's there under a promise of safe conduct. And then they're like, actually, never mind on that. We're going to execute you as a not just a heretic, but as a kind of leader of a heretical movement. Yes, and um, he's then and, burned at the stake. Right, and of course, you know, the the people who were attracted to his preaching are, of course, like, not particularly uh, pleased by that. No, and that is when the Hussite Wars break out, and that is when Zizka rises to prominence. So, so he says then, so when Sigismund branded them heretics and orchestrated Europe's crusade against them, Jan Zizka led the vastly outnumbered peasants, well, first of all, it was an official crusade from the Pope. Right. Crusades are not unusual. Right, no. And in fact, was, this is far from the first even example of a crusade that is targeting specifically Christian heretics. That yes. you know, Those go, go all the way back to the 13th century. Yes, exactly. And then Jan Zizka led the vastly outnumbered 
peasants. So what they're skipping here is the fact that Jan Zizka is a religious fanatic who mm-hmm. leads the army of an outbreak group from the Hussites. Right. So Especially because not- I find it funny whenever they're like the vastly outnumbered peasants. I'm like, that inherently as a phrase makes no sense because the point of peasants is that there's like a lot of them. Like, it, you know, obviously, you know, as we all know, the concept of, you know, feudalism is not really quite always useful and that the feudal pyramid is bullshit but like the point of it still is that there is this like big base at the bottom and that's going to be the peasants like by definition there are always going to be significantly more peasants than there are of the nobility the peasants are not outnumbered no Uh, and and also the fact that Jan Zizka became such a religious fanatic that the other Hussites declared war on him Right. But throughout the movie, we have Jan Zizka as this 21st century quasi-atheist hero. Mm-hmm. And the religious yeah. fanatic is Sigismund III, who lives in a chapel. Right. Well, and also the other thing that's going on with this, right, is that, and this is not unique to this movie, from what I understand, from what I understand, this is also very kind of linked to czech nationalism that there is a desire to equate a religious movement and a specifically religiously motivated revolt with a kind of generalized essentially like a class-based uprising there are class differences to some degree the film is very very much kind of glossing over you know the the actual makeup of the Hussites who are not exclusively peasants but that's I think a lot of kind of what they're trying to do right is they're kind of trying to make this a story about class when it's actually a story about religion but they're not interested in talking about religion so Jan Hus is sort of there very briefly but we don't actually know what Jan Hus says or believes, really. And uh, he is, and, you know, and Jan Jishka, you know, as, as you said, right, the, the point of Jan Jishka is that, you know, he is, attra- you know, he is attracted to these ideas and that he is a religious fanatic and that he, in fact, seems to have, like, has he ever heard of Jan Hus based on this movie? It kind of doesn't seem like he necessarily has. No, it seems like, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's a name that is sort of, it, it's a name that's out there, you know, it's like, when you when you mentioned Sophie Turner at the beginning of the movie, and I was like, "Oh yeah, all right, now I know." <laughs> it's like Catherine mentions Jan Hus, and he and he was like, "Who? Oh yeah, now I know." It's sort of yeah that that you know idea. But I think that what what you're what you are pinpointing here is what remains of the Marxist interpretation mm-hmm. of the Czech Middle Ages, right. right? Which doesn't work, right? And that's no. why. But I mean, it, it, it's still in the I mean, almost process. never it almost never works right when you know mm-hmm. as as historian you know as as historians we know this right that when you have a theory the messiness of actual reality very rarely fits neatly into the box of that theory 
And so, you know, while there are ways in which Marxism in a very broad sense can be kind of use, you know, can be useful as a lens through looking at things, when you try to fit it to kind of thoroughly into a box, it onto that box, it almost never works. And this is very much an example where it doesn't work and where they're kind of trying, right, to kind of make this this kind of Marxist class-based uprising when that is fundamentally not what the Hussite revolt actually is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and then after this text, we get the final images that you were referencing where he is in battle and he is carrying her ring. And I immediately thought about the last few minutes of Braveheart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the movie Braveheart ends, spoiler alert after 20 years, (laughs) the movie ends... (laughs) with Robert the Bruce at Bannockburn in front of an army mm-hmm. and he is holding the embroidered fabric that Murren gave to right, William, that William Wallace. Wallace got from the one woman in Scotland. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, oh my God, this is, he's, he's channeling Robert the Bruce here because mm-hmm. what happens then is that the battle starts and we get another a little bit more text and that the very very last text in the on the screen is dedicated to everyone who fights for freedom that and was another all moment i saw that I in my head was mel gibson on a horse yep. fighting you freedom! know i was like you gotta be kidding me <laughs> especially also because again that's not what they were doing no not even William Wallace was doing it. And no, and no. I mean, none of these people actually, no. almost, you know, no, no, none of these people are actually fighting for freedom. But yes, but certainly Jan Jishko was not fighting for freedom. No, he was. I mean, the, the thing is that so so at the at the at the heart of, of the Hussite Wars was the fact that at that time, when mass was celebrated, the congregation was only served see which one was it uh they got the congregation only received the uh the wafer and yes uh, as a, and not the wine the wine was re- yes. reserved for the priests yes <laughs> i was like so what the what the hussites wanted to do is that they wanted both right. because they read the bible in a way that to them you know we need both so which, that is which what, apparently makes sense right that you know for the fine that you you get the body and the blood yes you would think right so that is why the moderate Hussites are also known as the Utraquists mm-hmm. because of the Latin word utraque, which means with also. Right, right. So it is that they want the wafer with also the wine. And for right. that, Bohemia or the Czech lands erupted in, in war. And what we see is a complete destruction of churches specifically monasteries so this little devil that i have here up on my bookshelf on the bookstop it was created at a monastery that no longer exists because it was Mm -hmm. destroyed thoroughly by the hussites in the 1420s and several of these major monasteries were completely destroyed so it was massive destruction uh, but all over the fact that a group of people wanted to drink some wine. Mm-hmm. 
There were also critiques of, you know, corruption within the church and the power of the church hierarchy. You know, it wasn't yeah. just drinking wine, but you no. know, it is this, uh, but it is this, you know, religious specifically conflict, right? It's really yes. not fundamentally about class or freedom. No. No, not at all. And he was deeply religious. And and Zizka yeah. was deeply religious. So in a way, I was, when Zizka hands the boar tusk to his nephew, I was actually surprised to find that it was, because this is at the beginning of the movie, and before mm-hmm. you sort of learn what this character Zizka's and his values are and his worldview is, I was actually surprised that it was a boar tusk and not a crucifix. Mm. Or a cross or something, right? right? Well, because all of Jan Zizka's personality is essential. I mean, he doesn't really have a personality either. He's just very good at war. And yeah. uh, so, of course, his, you know, his thing that he bequeaths to his nephew, because, you know, religion is not ever presented as something that matters to him. It has to be some kind of symbol of his, you know, immense, impressive physical prowess, right? That, you know, you have this story that gets briefly hinted at that, you know, he killed this boar with his bare hands. And so then, of course, he has his boar tusk. Yeah. But but what is also interesting is that if we if we look at the boar tusk through a religious lens, it becomes an expression of paganism. It hmm, would, so becomes an expression of paganism on the one hand, but on the other hand, it is also essentially functioning as I would argue also a kind of like contact relic of Jan Jishka. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so that he is this, so that he has is this kind of figure of like sanctity, but of this fundamentally secular sanctity, because I'm not I'm not sure he has actually ever like heard the word God before. <laughs> and and meanwhile, as two uh medievalists are sitting here discussing the boar tusk as a religious contact relic, meanwhile the the creators of the movie is like, he just gave him a tooth. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's really badass and he killed this boar, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've already, I know, touched on a bunch of the um, things this movie got mostly wrong. But uh, let's see if there's anything else we should discuss in particular for the uh, Vera at Falso section. I had one kind of little thing that I found interesting is that there's just this little bit at the beginning where the mercenaries are complaining that they're receiving Florence instead of Grushin. The Groschen being the local currency in Bohemia and the Florins being a currency that is, of course, associated with Florence, although there are other places that also mint things that are called Florins. I would like to note that that, in my opinion, makes no sense because the Florin is an extremely high status coin. It's often used as a kind of currency of reference. It would be very, very easy to probably actually just use Florins pretty much anywhere, or if not, to exchange them at probably a pretty favorable rate. And so this this is actually something that I was wondering if this is meant to be another kind of weird gesture at nationalism, which feels very, again, out of place in the Middle Ages, but a kind of like, we want like our coin from our people is I think the only way that it makes sense in the essentially false and inaccurate context of this movie. Um, But I think in terms of actual like coinage, it does not in fact in like how currency in the Middle Ages worked, it does not make any sense. In my opinion, as an economic historian, yeah, no, it it, it probably has some. It probably has something to do with that. It could it could very well. The view of the Middle Ages and and sort of medieval Europe in 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 this movie is 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 sort of very interesting. But at the same time, we have Lord Boris who is yelling at 
people to, you know, that they need to, you know, get their shit together and unite Europe. Right. Which is also very interesting because yeah. Europe as a concept, is, as we think of it, is sort of starting to take shape at this time. But there is no such thing as, quote unquote, Europe. Just and yet. even if there were, nobody thinks that the Holy Roman Emperor is actually, practically speaking, uniting Europe. That there's, <laughs> there's a whole lot of, in fact, Europe that wouldn't be included in the Holy Roman Empire. No, no. Now, one thing that I thought was also very interesting is the costume design, because we have Sigismund III, who is walking around looking as if he's as if he's lifted from a medieval manuscript. Mm-hmm. But then we have, for example, like I mentioned, Barbara, who looks like she she's just stepped out of the the Walking Dead. And there is one point in the movie where Lady Catherine is, so she's wearing these sort of thin dresses. They're very plain. She never covers herself up, even though it's obviously freezing. Yes. I'm like, ma'am, you need a coat. Yeah. (laughs) But there is one point where she's wearing what looks like some kind of rough weather outfit. And she's wearing pants. And Zhishka is wearing pants, like right. pants like we wear. There's not a cotton it's piece very in sight odd. here. And she the, also is at some point she's horseback riding. And it's when she's still like with her fiance. It's not like she's being like kidnapped. And it's like a weird situation. And she's just like straddle, like hiking up a skirt and straddling the horse, yeah. which is uh, not so much how women would be riding. No, not at all. Oh, in fact, yeah, one of the like fun facts that I in fact came across when like double checking that, you know, just like to be safe, I was is like, oh, apparently like Anne of Bohemia, who is uh, one of Charles IV's daughters, uh, is like like popularized like a certain type of side saddle writing in England when she uh, married King Richard II. <laughs> As a fun, just like, yeah, by the way, that's that's what women in Bohemia would be doing and <laughs> other places too, but in particular, Bohemia. Yeah, and I also found it interesting that the fighters, so Zizka and his fighters, they look like some kind of fantasy Vikings. Mm-hmm. And the fighters on the other side, they look like some kind of fantasy Russian Mongol. Right. And uh, yeah, they also, yeah, they have, they have like these like all black armor. <laughs> Yeah, which I just like find hilarious in terms of like nobody would have put that much effort into like dying black <laughs> this material. No, no, and I also find it interesting that Zhishka and his men are obviously Northern European. Mm-hmm. Torak and his men are black or yep. Central Asian. Yeah, I had a lot of cringe moments where I'm like, oh. So this movie, they hired several actors of color, uh, all of whom are in relatively minor roles. Like they're not even people who, like, I'm not sure any of them have names. If they do, they're certainly not emphasized. Mm. And yeah, and all of them are part of the, you know, and all of them are bad guys, essentially. And including that there's like one in particular black actor who is represented as being like a particularly like sadistic military recruiter uh, who's kind of part of, I guess, Sigismund's men, uh, Rosenberg's men, I don't even remember anymore. Mm. But, you know, clearly, clearly a bad guy. Yeah, that was uncomfortable. (laughs) 
yeah and it's especially because when i started looking these actors up that fact that they are swedish they are norwegian they have built their international careers on playing vikings and one of them actually sings in swedish in the movie that is a a big problem for me right right no that was extremely disturbing I will, okay, one other thing that I wanted to note, we have these, we have these kind of very vague references to law at a couple of points with like Catherine is like, you can't do that. It says that in the law of Charles the fourth. And then like the, and then whoever is like, do it, I don't know, killing somebody or something for no reason. I don't know. Is like Charles the fourth is dead. It is a stupid, stupid scene. I will give the very, very light props that, in fact, Charles IV was known for illegal reform. I would say not with the goal of like making things better for people, but with the goal of just there being an actual coherent legal code that would apply to all of Bohemia, which is, you know, something that is fundamentally about establishing royal power. And unsurprisingly, accordingly, the nobility largely was just like, no, uh, in response to this, you know, which is something that like the movie does not actually really deal with, but that there are kind of these like little like kernels here and there of references to things like these, uh, these, you know, kind of legal conflicts between uh, the kings and uh, the nobility. And uh, I will give a shout out actually to uh, a student of mine, Matthew Bishop, who uh, did a paper on this and on the kind of legal context of uh, the Hussite revolt in my medieval law seminar last semester and his paper is getting published in uh, our department journal the Rhodes historical review so nice yeah 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 no I mean these legal reforms always created conflicts between the nobility and the king or emperor you know it's not something new it's right, not something right. unique for Bohemia. No. It's not unique for the Holy Roman Empire. Oh, no, it has absolutely always not. been this tug of war back and forth. Absolutely. But but it is something, right, that, you know, could I think have been an interesting element as something that, you know, as you said, right, is not unique to Bohemia, but that is part of this overall context. Mm. And it would have been interesting had they actually kind of dealt with it in any thoughtful way as opposed to like here is a dumb one-liner yeah also spoken by a person who most likely would never have studied law and yes actually could have made that statement especially also because like it's like you're not even from here (laughs) right (laughs) like because we don't know who her father is we know the king of france is her uncle and it does at some point like when because jishka's like going to bring her back to her father and then his men revolt against him because they're like his her father is in france and that's too far and we don't want to which honestly seems kind of fair and uh, so you know like she's from france she even beyond the fact that, you know, it's unlikely a woman in her position would have made a serious study of law, even beyond that, it's even more silly that she specifically is like super familiar with the legal reforms of Charles IV, given that as far as we can tell, she's like been in Bohemia for like a month. Yeah. It also, I mean, just a quick note on language. Yep. France and Bohemia do not speak the same language. They do not. No. And in Bohemia, one of the reasons why there is so much tension in Bohemia as Mm -hmm. a kingdom is that there are Czech-speaking Czechs 
and there are German speaking Germans Mm -hmm. and there are Yiddish speaking Jews. Mm -hmm. And all of these groups need to work together. And the ruling class speaks German Mm -hmm. or French. They do not speak Czech. Right. So just the fact that these people can communicate with each other. But I guess that mm-hmm. is the reason why all these actors have like so many different English accents. Right. And then it is also one of those things, right, where there are there are all of these linguistic complexities that they just have no interest in thinking about. In fact, that they're just going to just move along with that. Yeah. So chances are that when Catherine made that comment, nobody would have understood what she said. Right. I also then want to kind of like imagine her like barreling down that hill and then all of a sudden she's like yelling some stuff in French and then all of these like Czech speaking peasants are like, what is this woman on about? Who is she? Where did she come from? (laughs) (laughs) And I will give a last sort of half-hearted prompt. (laughs) Okay, increasingly toward the end of this movie, I'm just like, I don't care about any of these people this is stupid. So at some point there's like a lion <laughs> they're oh, yeah. like casually like chopping off some, like a hand and giving the hand to the lion. And then the lion like gets out and eats some people. I don't really remember who he ate. I don't really care. Uh, that part is ridiculous, but there in fact would have been lions kept in Prague in the royal court that uh, there apparently is uh, a tradition dating back to at least the late 13th century of lion breeding in Prague uh, because precisely lions are the symbol of the bohemian monarchy. So (laughs) there, there could have been a lion. Yes. However, what starts out as a real lion, when it really gets to work on the guy, it's a CGI lion. And I was very disappointed. So with that, uh, and again, we've already kind of touched on some of this, but let's get into the uh, the Historia at Veritas, where we talk about a real person, event, or phenomenon, and bring in just some additional context on Jan Zizka and on some of the other things that are going on in Bohemia at this particular moment. As I said, we've kind of touched on this already, but that, you know, we we have this, I would say, kind of complicated, but not quite so marked by weird, violent intrigue and constant wars, issues kind of within, uh, kind of in terms of the sort of succession of the Holy Roman Empire. That So basically, Charles IV, a couple of years before he dies, very, very carefully engineers his son being elected as the next Holy Roman Emperor. So that is very clear. That doesn't mean it's not complicated, especially because there is this, you know, conflict, and this is true a lot of other places too, that, you know, the nobility and the king don't get along, and he has these kind of conflicts with the nobility in Bohemia, and when you're in the middle of that sort of conflict... You, you know, often you then don't necessarily think, you know, what's a really good idea running off to a completely different place that's relatively far away to do a different thing. You usually don't think that's actually a super smart idea. And so because of that, Wenceslas doesn't actually go and get crowned as Holy Roman Emperor, which he's supposed to go and do in Rome, because he is busy in Bohemia. And because of that, he's also sort of neglecting some of his German possessions and there's a lot of kind of complicated maneuvering where basically like they elect somebody else as like an alternate king and Sigismund to Sigismund also like this movie kind of makes him seem like he's just like lounging at like the movie makes him seem like Scar 
in The Lion King, right? (laughs) That he's this like second son who like doesn't have anything to do and is just like sitting around intriguing. King of Hungry. I was going to think it's like Hungry doesn't need ruling. He's busy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, the, the thing with the Holy Roman Empire is that See, Swedish, Swedish historian Harold Gustafsson described the Holy Roman Empire as this amorphous entity that floated around the map of Central Europe for a thousand years. Yeah, that's a very good description. Yes. And the thing with the Holy Roman Empire is that it is a loose conglomeration of more or less independent duchies, kingdoms, cities, dioceses, archdioceses. And what they do, what they get together and agree on is who is emperor. And the emperor is elected by an electoral college. And this electoral college changes over time, but it needs to be a balance between, you know, these different political entities so that they are all represented. Including, so, of course, that it, that it includes, I'll just kind of add, you know, that it, may, that it always does include both ecclesiastics and secular rulers. Yes. So that is kind of part of this as well, right? That Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, because the idea of the Holy Roman Empire, when it sort of forms, and that is also a discussion, like, when does it actually form? Some say that the first emperor was Charlemagne, and others say it's Otto the first, 150 mm-hmm. years later. But it, it, it's called holy because it is considered to be sort of more than other political entities in medieval Europe. It's supposed to have sort of a closer relationship to the Pope and therefore also a closer relationship to God. And they are uh, supposed to get crowned by the Pope in Rome. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, to be an emperor, you are also king of the Germans. You are king of the Romans, who no longer exist. It is a complicated political process, but the political process has its way of taking its course. Yeah. So, and and because it is an electoral process, of course, there will be counter-candidates. I right. mean, we, we, we see that in any medieval kingdom where there is not primogeniture, that mm-hmm. you have kings and counter-kings. And and sometimes they are co-kings. Mm-hmm. They're co-rulers until one dies or the other one of natural causes or, or through, uh, through war. But you can also tell that at, at this point in time, the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire, they're getting you know, savvy enough that they are making sure that their sons are elected as their uh, successors. Right. Right. And this is why sort of before... In the early part of the history of the Holy Roman Empire, the title of King of Romans is just a title. Mm -hmm. But as this develops, the King of the Romans actually becomes the title of the heir. Right. So it's not this haphazard, everything is, is, is total chaos and people can just go in and do a grab. It is remarkable that Wenceslas is not crowned. Uh, and in fact, uh, also that I'll note that I think it is important in the context of this film, which is very much all war all the time, that most of these conflicts are that we're talking about here actually were political and relatively infrequently actually military. That, yeah. you know, the with the exception of that being that Sigismund at some point is kind of trying to take over Bohemia. And then there are actually, you know, he is 
attacking and raiding places. But that, you know, in terms of like all of these sort of, you know, political back and forth, uh, there's very little, in fact, war. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is a, it, it's a general misconception about the Middle Ages. Yeah, that because, people I mean, assume we, it's constant warfare, where in fact, like, it's, it really isn't actually. No, be, because I mean, every everybody, you know, it's, it's an agrarian economy. You have yeah. to be working the fields or you'll starve. So there are certain parts of the year which you, you can't go to war. And then there's the winter. So then you can't go to war either. So, and also the armies are smaller. The battles are smaller. Most of it was siege warfare, not so much on battlefields. We have the Hundred Years' War, but that doesn't mean that they fought for a hundred years. Right, right. That it's a lot of, you know, on and off. Uh, so yeah, it is, uh, it is. I think, very interesting that this movie really just wants to kind of posit that, you know, in this period, there are essentially these kind of constant battles that are essentially kind of wrecking the, you know, Czech landscape, which just fundamentally is just just didn't happen. No, no. Not at all. <laughs> and that that's also the case if we're talking about, right, these conflicts between the king and the nobility, right? That these are also not, they're not military conflicts. They're, you know, not running around kidnapping people's fiancés. Like, no. No, and I thought that was interesting that the that the reason why Jan Zizka and his men didn't want to participate in this is because they have a policy that they don't kidnap women. And I was like, are there enough women under threat of kidnapping for there to need to be a policy? Which was also uh, sort of interesting. I mean, not in this movie where she's the first woman they've ever seen in Bohemia. They had to import a woman from France. <laughs> there aren't any women in Bohemia. <laughs> They're like, look, okay, if we ever see a woman... We promise we won't kidnap her. <laughs> that is the good explanation for why the brother didn't remarry. Uh, didn't remarry. Although at the end, he's basically like Barbara, huh? Huh? But <laughs> that's the explanation is that he's like, it's like a real shortage of women in Bohemia. <laughs> so we also we have this kind of these uh this kind of way that the film kind of wants to gesture at the existence of Jan Hus because that is the context in which Jan Jishka will in fact become important in real life as opposed to the uh, the fantasy we have spun for this film. But we don't actually, again, hear anything about what his preaching looked like. And we're also then sort of like you know, we also then kind of have this odd, I would say, in some ways, kind of implicit compression of a timeline, in that it really kind of seems like it really kind of makes it seems like basically like everything's like about to go off in terms of that. Whereas, in fact, you know, this movie is described as taking place in 1402. So that means we still have a solid decade, you know, over a decade, it will not be until 1415, when Jan Hus will be called to the Council of Constance, tried and mm. executed. Yeah, I think that, I mean, when I was watching it, it seems like, yeah, it's a compressed timeline. So they have taken elements of what we know about John Zizka and elements of what we know about the political situation and the religious situation in Bohemia and, and then compressed it into this brief period. Because it couldn't, it can't have been, you know, for very long that all of this was going on unless Catherine lived with Zizka and his men for years, which I doubt. 
So oh, all, and also, all, I mean, all... by fourteen eleven, Wenceslaus, I think fourteen eleven, I think it's at some point around then. Like, it, like Wenceslaus just dies at some point. Yes, and Sigismund legally comes into power. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that yeah, it, it's definitely a compressed timeline where they have put you know stuff together that you know like that should be years, if not decades, apart. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we also then, you know, we we only get this like brief hint at the end of, uh, you know, Zizka as eventually kind of like, oh, and then he ended up like in this like as this like major military commander and he was like never defeated and he's so great. The film is sort of odd in that it places in 1402 this weird trajectory that he has from being what I might describe as a vaguely amoral like sort of a mercenary but also he seems like he's like very dedicated to the interests of the king to basically like i am going to amorphously do what is the like right thing Mm. it's unclear how he decides what is the right thing like in terms of where he is getting that moral code from (laughs) certainly doesn't seem to be from any like religious thing it seems very much like a 21st century like let's help the oppressed yeah but but then odd right because then it it, like it kind of does this weird thing where it places in 1402 this like from like a moral mercenary to somebody who has this like specifically moral vaguely defined motivation when in fact like then it sort of fundamentally doesn't make any sense because we know that he's basically like a bandit and a mercenary like several years after this yeah Yes, in a way that doesn't seem like it particularly like like fits into this like character arc no and also i mean if if that battle at the end is indeed one of the battles of the hussite wars it means that he has been thinking about catherine for 20 years yeah yeah i mean again there's no other women in bohemia so like as i said assuming he's only sexually and romantically interested in women it's not like he's got a lot of other you know it's not like he's got a lot of other options no literally there was one 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 once she was (laughs) the one and she got away right well i think he also there was like some blonde woman that he liked when he was a kid and somebody killed her i kind of actually missed it yeah, I don't understand what she, was she a sister? What she? What, what I found she? it extremely confusing whether she was his sister or his girlfriend. Yeah, because she was a little too young to actually be a wife, and he was too young to. And nobody ever, and like his brother doesn't seem to like reference the fact that like he was married at some point. Like I don't know. As, as I said, I found it very unclear. Very unclear, and he wouldn't speak about it because that's what also one thing I found interesting with the movie that as Catherine as the movie progresses and Catherine gets less and less lines, mm-hmm. so does Zizka. Yeah, including actually that Catherine is like, who's Anna? And he's like, <laughs> It's like, okay, so we're just going to skip any possibility of having like an emotional, uh, you know, moment here. Huh? All right. Yeah, and also then these two you... characters were allegedly in love. Like, and again, their relationship is based on nothing. Yeah, and also, I mean, you, you, you could possibly believe in a connection if the actors had connected yeah they do not no they don't again like the basis of their relationship for is that for him she's the only woman in bohemia and for her it's i guess stockholm syndrome yeah that's exactly (laughs) what i was thinking about 
Because already, you know, with the swap, the prison swap between her and Yaroslav, they're like, oh, you don't want to leave? No, I don't. Hey. (laughs) We do also, I'm not sure we actually talked about it. I think we might have skipped over it. But uh, we do have the scene in which in one of these battles or another, he he loses an eye and she, you know, nurses him. We have the kind of very gross scene where she finds some upsetting looking maggots and puts them on top of his eye so they eat the rotting flesh and allow him yes. to heal faster. So what, one of the things that it, that uh, Zizka is famous for is that he loses his eye at one point. We don't know why or when. And one of the few times when he is mentioned in the writings who they believe, I mean, no one ever knows for certain if it's right. Jan Zizka that we see in the historical sources, but there is a record of someone connected to the Prague court called the one-eyed Jan, the doorman, right. uh, buys property in the city of Prague. Right. And, and so since we know that Jan Zizka lost the, you know, and he was connected to the, he was actually connected to the court. Mm-hmm. He was raised. He's also at, somebody who I believe is like impoverished gentry as opposed to yeah. like a peasant per se. Like as, as is very common, right? That these kind of nationalistic heroes get kind of turned into peasantry when that's actually also not, not quite what was going on. Yeah. So he is, from what I understand, he he grew up connected to Wenceslas' court. Mm-hmm. Possibly he was in the service of Wenceslas' second wife. But, you know, that's all we know. But we do know that by the time that he becomes the leader of, of the Hussites or the Taborites, which is the sect that he belongs mm-hmm. to, he has lost his eye a long time ago. And he also loses his second eye. So at the very, yes. very end, he has actually a blind commander. Yeah, which is, you know, which is interesting. And, you know, you can certainly see, right, why why his story is fascinating to people, you know, as, like, this guy who, like, yeah, ends up, like, for a number of years, in fact, like, leading armies as, you know, as a blind man, that he has lost the use of both of his eyes. Yeah, and, and he is a blind man in his 60s, which is also extraordinary, considering what he's been doing in his life and what time period he lived in. So he lived for, for, for living that kind of life during that time, he, he reached a, a, an expectedly high age. Right. Right. That, you know, as, as we know, right. The idea that everybody died at 40 in the middle ages is pretty exaggerated, but he certainly is, uh, is living the kind of lifestyle that might lead one to die at around 40. Yeah. Um, And yeah. And, you know, given, given that right. Does, uh, does pretty well. As we've already referenced, right, he's somebody who certainly is is a religious fanatic there. You know, he is also somebody who is, you know, very much like a, a military man, right? That he is, a, there's certainly no reason to think that he was what we today in the 21st century would call like an especially moral individual as opposed to somebody who is like very very much focused on like accomplishing his goals no matter how many people whoever they might be get killed yeah i mean i think that he is a very good example of of the uh, sort of the soldier of god mm-hmm. that it, it if you if you if you do it in the name of of religion and you have the right backers then you can be considered a 
religious and moral person, even though you are committing atrocities. Mm -hmm. I mean, Charlemagne is an excellent uh, example of this when he is campaigning against the Saxons. And it today, I mean, he would be he would be at the uh, at the court in in the Hague for what he did, but he is considered the you know the patron saint of Europe right. because he had the right. right backers and he he attacked the the correct uh, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so yeah, similarly, right? That you know, this is somebody who you know when we actually look at him from a you know modern perspective, that you know he you know would come off as an extremely brutal individual. Uh, and also, fun fact: there is a chronicler who reported that his dying wish was for his skin to be used to make drums, so he could still lead his troops into battle. <laughs> so very possibly apocryphal, but interesting, right? That this is a story that already relatively soon, I believe, after his death was being told about him. Mm. With that, I think we can do the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. So, and I will just start by saying that what if, what if, hear me out, what if we actually have a movie that's in the Middle Ages that's not actually about war? That would be great. What if? I don't see why we couldn't actually have like a good movie about Jan Hus or arguably perhaps even better about people who listened to the preaching of Jan Hus and found it compelling. Yeah. Like that's actually what I would like to see. Like I would like to see like a series of vignettes about like maybe like shortly before Hus is tried and executed about like people who were like very invested in him who then might like become involved subsequently in the mm. revolt yeah because i mean he um i'm gonna look up a movie here uh which is a great medieval movie that is not about war and it's actually based on a story from the decameron oh uh, little hours it's with uh, aubrey plaza so it's been yeah little, yeah the little hours was that one yeah that's that's one with Aubrey Plaza that's based on the Decameron. Okay, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't remember the title. Uh, yeah, but I think that is one of the few movies that actually, you know, captures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. But, I mean, I think that to... to I think we need to hopefully, even though this movie has its issues, hopefully it is sort of the beginning of a widening of what the middle ages can be in the movies but i mean i definitely see where it drew its influences and you know it's definitely heavy on brave hearts yeah and that's the thing for me right is that on the one hand i i really appreciate right this expansion of the geographical scope but it ultimately to me kind of felt like the movie that i've seen 14 times just now it's set in bohemia yeah it could have been anywhere yeah definitely i mean they they uh they made jishka so sort of bland that he could have been anybody i mean and he is i mean he kind of is right he kind of like is william wallace like yeah (sighs) or trying to be some kind of king arthur type thing yeah and so that's yeah. the thing too, right? Is that I would I would like to see more films that actually kind of sat with like the specificity of different medieval cultures mm. in whatever way that is, right? I mean, even if you're going to make the like Jan Zizka movie, actually make a Jan Zizka movie. Yeah, exactly. 
Like it would actually, yeah. like, actually like sit with like who he is as opposed to kind of making like, as opposed to just the kind of vague, you know, nationalist hero. Yeah. But it's also, and in that sense, the movie becomes a very good example of how we are using the middle ages. Yes. Saying that this is about the middle ages, but it is actually about today right. and how, I don't know how representative this movie maker is for how the Czech pub, Czech population views John Zizka, but it is mm-hmm. definitely, you know, a lot of people decided to invest in this project. So there mm-hmm. must be people who agree with his view. Right. Right. That it seems like basically a, a Czech nationalist project, which is attractive to at least some people in the Czech Republic today. Yeah. As opposed to anything that's really about the Middle Ages. Absolutely. Yeah. So this one I think we can, uh, we can rate the film on a scale of one to five based on whatever subjective criteria you see fit with. Oh, man. Okay, so, I mean, it depends on how you look at it, right? So, if mm-hmm. you're looking at it as an archetypical medieval movie in the genre of medieval movies, I would probably give it a five out of five because it does its job of being, you know, no color, uh, grayscale, uh, mud everywhere, blood everywhere, stereotypical people. So, in that sense, a five out of five. Um, if I would look at it as a movie with a plot that makes sense and does its work <laughs> within the time allotted, I would probably give it a two out of five. Mm-hmm. If I would look at it as a, a historical movie uh, portraying the Middle Ages and the people who lived there, it would probably be a one. Yeah, I just... I'm just sick of how, I mean, this is just such a tropey movie, right? That I've just, I, I, again, I just, I just feel like I've seen this movie a million times and I pretty much never like it. And this is, this is no exception. And, you know, it's, it's not badly done in the sense that like, I think all the actors are doing a perfectly adequate job, like, Nobody, I don't think there's anybody who's like not doing what they're supposed to do. Mm. But it's also like, okay, you just made a movie which is free at the at, at the best, I think the best I think you can say about it is that like you made like a Czech Braveheart, which is like probably not actually as good as Braveheart, which like, you know, I, I have a lot of issues. I have many, many issues with Braveheart, but I think it's art that is like a better movie if one is trying to be objective about it. And so this then just feels like very tropey. And because of that, for me, it feels very, very boring. And also, uh, wow, does this movie like just not like women. Um, I I have on this podcast a test that I've invented called the Ift Decker test, where to pass this test, uh, there has to be one named woman who doesn't die. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I'm, you know, I know technically this movie passes by the skin of its teeth because I think Barbara might make it, Mm. but I kind of don't want to give it the credit. Like, I kind of feel like if you essentially, like, you have precisely one woman who has more than two lines and have her spectacularly commit suicide to save a man, I just feel like, 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 the spirit of the test, like, this movie does not pass. (laughs) So I'm giving it a one. Yeah. I do have to say, though, that the cinematography is fantastic. 
yeah, I will say like this is this is not a badly made movie. The no. acting is perfectly good. The cinematography, I think, is well done. I personally found that the battles all sort of blended together, but I often feel that way. Maybe there are people who like movie battles more than I do who would feel differently. Yeah, no, and I think that it 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 could have definitely been half an hour shorter, but I think they were trying to go for the epic. It's just that you actually yeah. have to have story to fill the time. Right. It's not just time. It's actually a story and honestly, to tell. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, I've seen that, like, honestly, like, props for this for being, like, just over the two-hour mark. I've watched so many of these things that, like, are three hours that could have been 90 minutes. So yeah. two hours and could have been 90 minutes, honestly, isn't bad. <laughs> So, Erica, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've had a blast. Um, yeah. Are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? So, I have my blog called The Boomerang, which is at ehkern.com. And I write a blog post about, about once a week about things of history. I review popular history books, academic history books, and then, you know, whatever comes to mind that I talk about. And I am also on Twitter, even though I'm not there that much these days, but I am there at at EH underscore Kern. I'm also at Instagram at EH underscore Kern. And I am on Mastodon at eHarlitzKern at historians.social. Hmm. One of these days, I might have to ask you to explain Mastodon to me. I do not understand it. Uh, I'm still figuring it out. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So yeah, so I'll please go and find Erica in those various places, which will also be in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app. That struggling with that one today. And rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ipschdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Erica, thank you again. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And, And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.